I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas, host of the Raceless Gospel Podcast, which is sponsored by New Baptist Covenant. Since 2007, Baptists have responded to President Jimmy Carter's invitation to tear down barriers in communities previously marked by division, communities estranged in apathy. The movement called New Baptist Covenant invites us all to become bridge builders. If you or your congregation are ready to respond to the call for reconciliation and healing, if you are prepared to pave the way for racial justice, if you're ready to walk in the way of love, then join the journey with New Baptist Covenant. Together, let's build bridges toward beloved community. Start online at newbaptistcovenant.org and on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Now I hear the bells calling me to church. Hello and welcome, all God's children. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go and talk about that taboo trinity, race, religion, and politics. Thank you for joining the Raceless Gospel Podcast, where word meets flesh, and where we gather to talk about the sticks and stones, the skin and bones of Christian discipleship, in the structure of a church service. I am your host and podcast pastor, Starlet Thomas. On today's podcast, I am joined by the Reverend Dr. Michael Bledsoe. He was an adjunct professor at Howard University for 20 years in the areas of world religions, philosophy of religion, and church history, and the pastor of Riverside Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. for 28 years. He is also the author of several books. Today, we aim to address a thorn in the flesh, the consistent poke and prick of politics and the intersections of race and religion. We hope to address the necessity of politics, its negligence and nuances, what it means when racialized, and the fine line that separates church and state. Won't you pray for us? do pray with me. God, who is not a political candidate or deity, who is not a donkey or an elephant, who does not come in red, blue, or even purple, who is not limited to states more divided than united, won't you guide us toward the truth of who you are and who we are in you? Because we crossed our hearts and were supposed to die with Christ in that baptismal water, But somehow our political differences got up and they keep coming up in ways that keep us divided. Help us to surrender, to throw our hands up, and then to put our hands in for your kingdom work. Because you made us for each other, not to go against each other. In the name of the nonpartisan and raceless Christ, who didn't come to pick a side, we pray. Amen. When I was growing up in the South, there was a time in the worship service when persons stood up within the congregation and bore witness to what God was doing in their lives. It was called their testimony. They began... First, giving honor to God, who is the head of my life, to the pastor, visitors, saints, and friends. And today, I want to testify about politics, the way it shapes our convictions, conversations, and communities, and how God delivered me from both sides of the aisle. Because life is more nuanced, because there are more than two sides to the story. Now, I did not grow up in a home that talked politics. There were no heated discussions over the economy, the ethos of the country under one party or another, who my parents were voting for or whose campaign was better for our community. 
There were no front yard signs, no standing in line, no I voted stickers. And though neither of my parents went to church with me, much like our faith, I got the feeling that how the government worked was mysterious for them. It was above our heads and we could only shake our heads in disappointment or nod our heads in agreement at whatever came down. My parents did not engage civically, did not talk politics or politically. No long-term planning or thinking, save what they were going to do for the weekend. Too poor or too scared or too tired or too defeated to dream, they lived from day to day. And I get it, but the vote was a way for them to have their say if they ever wanted to. But they wouldn't have. Generally speaking, my family thought Jesus was coming soon and that they were always preparing for his return. Not in the following in his footsteps, get your house in order kind of way, but rather it doesn't matter what the government does, so there's no need to participate because Jesus has the final say, or it didn't matter because this was the devil's world. They had no interest in it while claiming sports and a social life that came with drinks you had to sip, not because they were hot, but because they burned. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. They didn't see or care to acknowledge the political world and its climate's immediate impact on them. Still, I could see the frustration. They didn't want to talk about it or think about it. And I wouldn't have either if I hadn't learned about the civil rights movement. People had died for this right. So I would vote first as a registered Democrat, but years later as a registered independent. I didn't like the bickering, pandering, and politicking. I didn't like this two-party system conservative, moderate, or liberal, either or, back and forth, just doesn't work for me. I need more choices, more gray areas, more nuance. I don't like the categories. The boxes don't complete me. I don't want to pick a party or a side. Now, I'm not in the middle, but I am still holding out for unity, for all of us to come together, for us to come to a consensus and to some understanding that we are not the thorns in each other's flesh and whatever it is, cannot be voted out. Our scripture reading is Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, and it reads this way. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I want to introduce to you my conversation partner, Michael Bledsoe, retired pastor and seminary professor. For today's message, we will engage in the tradition of call and response, a sacred back and forth on politics, how it has worked, could and should work, and the thorn in the flesh that it continues to be. Feel free to join in as official members of the Amen Corner. Pray for us as we attempt to address a thorn in the flesh. We are more divided and different than I could have imagined. And I've been taking notes. Uh, James Baldwin writes in Notes of a Native Son, uh, we find ourselves bound, first without, then within, by the nature of our categorization. We take our shape, it's, it is true, uh, within and against that cage of reality, bequeathed us at our birth. Uh, and yet it is precisely through our dependence on this reality that we are most endlessly betrayed beautiful words by Baldwin. So I'm wondering what mental or physical notes uh, you have taken about uh, our present political reality, the political categories that have bound us, uh, and then what I find to be endless betrayals. What are your thoughts? Well, I watched I Am Not Your Negro that featured James Baldwin's take on American race. So we're having corresponding reference points. Baldwin's alienation from American church was rooted in racist and homophobic categorizations. Yes, sir. And those rendered him subhuman in the eyes of many. I love that film 
it reminded me that someone lived, in fact, very many have lived, speaking truth to power. Yes, sir. As for 2020, it's been an awful year, which is prosaically a very inadequate way to summarize a year of plague and an antichrist in the White House. My Lord. And I just want to note, I've used the singular, an antichrist, not the. So I'm referring more to First John's epistle about there are plural antichrists, not the, not the one uh, described in the Revelation. That's right. Make it or plain. the apocalypse. Anyway, uh, just having come out of that election cycle, seeing 45's defeat, I am reminded of the coalition politics that elected Obama twice, that we can do this. But of course, 74 million voted for uh, Trump and the racist, misogynist, toxic masculinity continues to haunt our body politic. I've made two other notes. I mean, truth is, of course, you and I have made more than just a couple of notes this year, but there's two that I recall making. One was from um, the journalist Walter Lippmann. There can be no liberty for a community which lacks the means by which to detect lies. Yes, sir. And that pretty much sums up America and its politics. The other quote is from the fourth century Bishop of Hippo, Augustine, who wrote in the City of God, what are kingdoms without justice? They are just gangs of bandits. So while that also captures our body politic in 2020, it's also a reminder that Christians have from very early on suffered in the city of man, the city of human. We've been dealing with this reality of emperors and empires sick at their very core since Mary was told she was giving birth to a child whose kingdom would never end. So already the gospel is working its subterfuge. That gives me so much hope and so much promise. It just reminds me that this is not our good news. Uh, it's not the good news of our country, our culture, our political party. Uh, or affiliation, even our skin, but it's still, it's God's good news. And how, how easy it is for us to, to get off the path, call the people of the way, how, quick, how quickly we lose track of Jesus. Uh, and I find myself wondering, people ask what would Jesus do? And I wonder where is Jesus? Uh, because uh, Jesus invites his disciples to identify with those who are experiencing poverty uh, and marginalization. Uh, but many churches in North America are overtly identifying with a political candidate or party. Uh, and it has been called the patriotic gospel, not my words, it's been called the patriotic gospel. So what do you make of this theological exchange? The patriotic gospel is an oxymoron. Jesus was not a son of the empire and imperial power. He was crucified by it. So these folks who gather around a flag and declare an allegiance to country over Christ or an allegiance to country equal to their allegiance to Christ, they are deeply confused. And that's all I have to say about that. I don't think a lot has to be said about it. It's so obviously on its face, uh, anti-gospel. Paul calls it another gospel, but yeah, you know, it, it, there are people who drape the communion table yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, in a flag yeah. and you well, know, and they sing patriotic hymns. Every, every, every time we get close to the 4th of July, you know, they pledge allegiance. So how do, you, how do they hear the gospel um, if they, well, if they uh, mix it with white supremacy the, and American exceptionalism? This, this is why the church since uh, Constantine has participated in the crucifixion of so millions true. of people. So true. So we march through those. They, they think they're being good citizens. <laughs> oh, my God. Well. It's a sight to see. Of course, there's there's historical precedents, but to watch it's it play outrageous. out in real life, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, it is. I mean, I've read about it's it, outrageous. But to see it, um, we've talked about. There's always been this deification and demonization of political candidates and later presidents, and I I see it as like at fever pitch. Like I've I've never seen anything like it. Um, we've been dealing with these things a long time, and in terms of the span of church history. So our country has seen other moments mm -hmm. of fever pitch, mm -hmm. division, outright hatred. You think about the civil rights movement or this, previously the Civil War, Vietnam, lots of, lots of division and hatreds, of course. But to your question about the relationship between 
the politics and the church in North America, churches for the most part in North America are assimilated, including liberal progressive churches like the one I pastored for 28 years. We're interwoven. We benefit from the political situation. I'm using politics more broadly here to refer to an array of things we take for granted uh, from simple on the ground citizenship, uh, duties, privileges, to movements and candidates working for broader social policies. Uh, you, you and I walk out of the house, enter a car, turn the car on. We assume that persons or are going, you know, good civilians, good citizens are going to stop at stop signs, stop at red lights, and do the speed limit. And when they don't, we hold them accountable. So, so there's this political weave in which all of us, right and left, participate. Um, of course, African Americans and uh, women and other minorities are poignantly aware of how difficult it has been to navigate America that navigating America at times has been navigating hell. And you know, what's shocking about the North American church and, and more precisely North American churches, because we know there is not a capital C church, um, is white evangelicals. I was Catholics, getting ready to say it. <laughs> black conservative churches follow him in lockstep. Nearly 75%. And they're not embarrassed, they're not ashamed. You know, at least during the civil rights movement, uh, there was this talk of the sinful laryngitis of these socially colored white, you know, uh, clergy persons. Now they're out, they're out front, they're vocal, they're clear. You know where they land, you know exactly what they're identifying with. They know exactly what he's doing. They know exactly who he is and yet they line up with it. Some kind of way uh, they find themselves well, it's following kinda, it's him. Kinda, it's been catastrophic for a whole lot of yeah. persons. Yeah, yeah. So then what do you say to folks who, Christians who say, keep politics out of the pulpit, just give me Jesus. Um, even though politics shapes the way in which we live and the way we live with each other. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm thinking of, I've been reading through again, um, Dr. King's, um, um, where do we go from here, community or chaos? He asked that question. Um, and I was asking broadly, of course, that there's a, a politics of chaos and there's a politics of community. And I know there's nuance there, um, but I wanted to know what you, what you, what do you think? What's the church's role in where we go from here? And what do you say to the folks who say, just give me Jesus? Because um, we've seen both. I've seen politics of community that bind everyone together and say, we're in this together. We're not divided. There's, no, there's not red states, blue states. And then we've seen this, this chaos erupt from the White House that I didn't even think possible or feasible. Um, so what do you say? Just give well, me Jesus. You, you know, there's nothing like hatred to bind people. And, and Manichaean politics really counts on that. The, word, the root word for religion is to bind together. So, so your, your idea of politics of chaos and community, I think spot on, uh, comes down to, I think, um, politics of love or hate. Which of those are you going to use to bind people together? And um, I, guess I, I guess, you know, I'd say to those folks who say, just give me Jesus, that I agree. Hmm. But I don't think they know what they're saying. Hmm. So what do you think they're saying? Jesus, Jesus was an apocalyptic preacher. He was someone who said the kingdoms of this world were passing away and God's reign was breaking in. The New Testament refers to Christians as strangers in the world. So I don't think a strong case can be made from scripture or the history of the early church anyway, that the idea was to create a politics of community, except that they were of the profound belief that the Eucharist baptism and preaching formed a communion community, and they believed that so much that the last damn thing they would do is wave a flag and bow to Caesar or the president, any president. So, you know, I, I, I want Jesus too, but you're going to have to really think about who he was. But isn't that, that a place to land? Uh, on communion, remembering Jesus' body versus our own? Yes. I think we get wrapped up in that. It makes me think of, I mean, the bibliophile that I am, make me think of uh, Neville Callum. He has a book called uh, From Fragmentation to Wholeness. I hope I can find this quote. Ah, and here it is, from fragmentation to wholeness. He says this about Holy Communion. He says, Holy Communion can also inspire followers of Christ to offer a comprehensive wit witness against divisiveness. 
Holy Communion can also inspire followers of Christ to offer a comprehensive witness against divisiveness. Now, are we even doing communion right uh, if our witness is not one of unity? What are we doing at the communion table? I think the church has always, and I mean always, from the earliest strata of the Gospels, struggled with what is happening at communion. You know, there's, there, and there has not been a unanimous, it, you look at the Reformation history and how sad it is that Luther and Zwingli could not agree on uh, communion. And so this is, I guess, to use Paul Tillich's phrase, uh, we, we're just never going to get there perfectly. And his phrase was under the conditions of existence. So I agree with the author. I mean, I, I hope, one would hope that it would be a counter. I do think the gospel and the church are counter signs to a prevailing culture. And in America, that prevailing culture, uh, as far as the church, is Christianity is entertainment. And man, have we just bought into that hook, line, and sinker. You're talking about that bibbidi-bobbidi-boo, prosperity gospel, name it and claim it, believe it and receive it, Jesus as a genie, <laughs> rub your Bible, slap your neighbor, high five, it's coming, well, pull it down. Yes, that and uh, maybe more kind of uh, 1950s liberal views ah. of having having a clergyman stand up in the Senate and, and I mean, they've been doing that for 200 years, but, uh, and giving a prayer in the Senate. Yeah. Stop doing yeah. that. Yeah. That's the Baptist in me. Stop doing yeah. it. Yeah. You know? and, and, and just let's, let's demythologize America. Quit having the president inaugurated with his hand on a Bible. I, I would be, and I've told my students at Howard Divinity this over the years. I'd be more comfortable if you put your hand on a box of cornflakes. I, I would prefer religion not be used to kind of uh, smoke and mirrors, cover up what's happening mm. here. Anyway, that kind of goes afield from your question. About no, no, communion. no, because it's still hiding hands. No, it just always strikes me that uh, Christians uh, argue about the body and where to place bodies and which body to identify with when they have Jesus's body and we're supposed to remember him. I always, I, well, I'm amazed by the amnesia, the forgetfulness of it all. Yeah, well, that body is wounded. Yes, sir. Yes, it is. People don't, people don't like to be wounded. Ah, I, that, that's another perplexing thing for me, this church that doesn't want to suffer and yet worships one who died on a cross. Don't they know that all roads lead to Calvary? Don't they know where we're headed? Preacher, don't they know? The end is death. Take up your cross and follow me. Self-mortification. I mean, I don't know how you proclaim a, a, a prosperity gospel beneath a, a cross. Yeah. I mean, but you know, a lot of those auditoriums don't even have crosses. So well said. There's globes and like things rock like that. Stadiums. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So tell me this, Christians are reading the same sacred writ, but seeing, interpreting, and practicing the faith very differently from each other. Um, there are thorny issues like abortion, same-sex marriage, gun rights, and police brutality that keep poking us, prodding us to push and to have the conversation. So how do Christians get on the same page, if that's even possible? Yeah, I know I keep saying this, but you know these instances of not being on the same page mm -hmm. has been the case from uh, the first church um, my response is, we don't have to be on the same page. Yes, and whenever the church has had the political power to put everyone on the same page, it has resulted in pogroms, inquisitions, mm. tyranny of all kinds. So you get Baptists who come along in the 17th century as dissenters in England, and they said, and I, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, they said, you know what, just stay out of our religious life and religious persons should not be running governments as their own congregation for the doctrine of faith. What, what a Christian must try to do in his or her brief life is live like Christ. A cruciform life will, as you already pointed out, bend toward the marginal. So my, my Baptist minimalist ecclesiology would say, if you step into a church where the pastor is authoritarian, 
and exhibits a toxic masculinity. And, and by the way, that doesn't just apply to male pastors. No, it does there's not. Female, there's female pastors who, paradoxically enough, will stand up and exhibit toxic masculinity. Or if they're a bigot of one sort or another, you should get out. You should leave at once. Go find that community of faith where you can live like Christ. Now, authentic Christians will have genuine disagreements on an array of issues. I just, that seems obvious to me. Always before us, though, is the Imagio Dei, the image of God within each of us. So one must ask oneself, do I, does my church see the person in front of me as fully human? So if so, that, if that is a fully human being in front of you, they, I would say religiously and politically, should benefit from all the protections of the state and the care of the church. H how do you mar the image of God in someone? So, so again, we're, we're assimilated, so churches are very often more interested in propping up mainstream morality and cultural traditions than they are treating someone as the child of God that they are. No, but that's the question. It's a lot, it's a, it's a lot easier to, to fight about what kind of Advent candles you have and, you know, how many poinsettias get put in You're stepping in, the in it. You're stepping in it. You know, that's, that's easier to solve. Well, actually, it's not easier to solve. I mean, if you've ever been in church fights. <laughs> That's why I said you're stepping in it. Because we've been doing this. get wrapped around the axle on the trivial <laughs> while the world's going to hell. That's I it. mean, you know, that sounds like a fundamentalist preacher. Rome is burning. We're twiddling our thumbs. Yes, sir. How do you, how do you, how do we mar the image of God in someone else? Isn't that the question? How did that happen? All God's children. How did that happen? Every day, every day, you and I and others step into the world, we encounter other human beings, other persons. Every day we're making judgments. And it's, it's something innate within us, you know, probably, probably a, a survival instinct reflex. Who is this person walking toward me? And so we have to figure those things out. We have, we have to train our children about that. And, and one reason that is so is because people are capable of awful things. You know, you can't necessarily assume the best. But when someone walks into my pastoral study and tells me and unveils things about them, and I dismiss them as, well, you're divorced, we can't have you as a member in the church, and, you know, um, you know, we... We say on our sign that everyone's welcome, but as you can tell, we're mostly a white church, so we're not really comfortable. <laughs> you know, it's those, it's those kinds of things. You make decisions about people's humanity and you mar that image. We are, another way, a more positive way to put this is, we've been given this remarkable gift to honor the image of God in others. What a, what a wonderful opportunity. Sadly, the church is complicit in marring that image. I'm your host and podcast pastor, Reverend Starlet Thomas. We'll be right back with more of the Raceless Gospel from Good Faith Media. This is Mitch Randall. And I'm Autumn Lockett. And we co-host Good Faith Weekly. Each week, we provide conversations and interviews at the intersection of faith and culture through an inclusive Christian lens. Subscribe to Good Faith Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for making space for that church announcement. Now back to the rest of my back and forth with Michael Bledsoe. I want your thoughts. There's a, there's this false vi binary choice between preaching the gospel and pursuing justice. Uh, why is that? I, I hear it all the time now. You know, keep that, you know, and that's for the world to do. That's not our pursuit. You know, our focus is salvation and saving souls. 
Um, don't we don't we don't do justice. We have a we have a committee. <laughs> we have a committee for other things. I don't know. I, I, I don't know what Bible they read. I really you know, you, you got a sci, a synetic covenant. Yeah, that is uh, uh, God entering into covenant with people and they're agreeing to fulfill the, you know, and the conservatives are very clear. They want the Ten Commandments everywhere, even though they can't cite most of them. A covenantal, um, you know, a, a, co a covenantal ethic is at the root of the biblical revelation. God's actually concerned about how you treat your neighbor. So I don't know. I don't know why justice uh, gets. Well, I can guess at why it's been uh, under siege of late, because for 30 years or more, we've had right wing talk show hosts uh, like Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh denouncing anything that's justice oriented as uh, social gospel or socialist. And and my response would be. So, so, so there's some overlap. I wonder if it's because of the people that are crying out for justice. Does it matter who is? Does the oh, voice sure. matter? You're right. No, you're right. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's true. I, I wrote a, a blog piece several years ago, uh, an open letter to uh, white Christians. And yes, you did. Florida, but you know, I, I was saying then that, you know, if, if white folks would be as passionate about the justice for their own children, because there's no way they would tolerate this kind of uh, um, extrajudicial killings, you know, then we, we could make some steps, you know, show up at the police stations, put your body on the line, make, make your voice heard for others. Fear is a big thing. And that's why you saw uh, 45 spent much of his campaign uh, ginning up fear. Yeah. Fear of your suburbs being ruined. Who's that message for? It should be for me. I live in the suburbs. I feel fine. <laughs> you live in the burbs. <laughs> I live in the burbs. I feel quite comfortable. I'm like, what is he saying? Who is he talking to? I think he, no. he misses the mark in that also because the suburbs have changed. You know, it's multicultural out here where I'm from. Uh, so I don't even know who he's talking, who his well, audience is. His mindset yeah, is so yeah. 1950s, 1960s even. I know. but Everybody's in the burbs right now. Not everybody. I mean, I went to Florida recently to visit Why my you bring mother up Florida? And, and, dro <laughs> and drove around. And I'm from Florida. Oh, Before was... anybody says anything, slick. Oh, really? Yes, okay. I am. <laughs> not proud of it. I'm not proud of it, but you know. You got out though. <laughs> yes, I did. God delivered me. Um. <laughs> anyway, I visited my mother who lives in a rural area of Florida. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's it's predominantly white and it's it's uh, Trump signs everywhere. So there is a, not everything is suburbs, but you're right. I mean, I do think what you have your finger on is a significant divide in American life, and that is rural versus urban. Absolutely. And and so, yeah. I hear it every time I go home for for a funeral. <laughs> yeah, every time I go home for a funeral, which doubles as a family reunion. Oh, you didn't come down here with that New York accent. She didn't went to school and got fancy. <laughs> uh huh. I see. Yeah. Well, you know, to get back to your question, I think I think uh, for preachers. Yeah. And priests and pastors and religious folks, That's right. uh, they don't want to deal with these questions because it, it will mean suffering. You you yeah. could lose your job. Absolutely. Now, look, I pastored after I got my shiny PhD. I went to Columbus, Ohio, and pastored um, a dying urban church, uh, First Baptist Church. And uh, I wasn't there but maybe six months when I had a deacon come up to me after a service and say, uh, we've heard enough about, or we've heard enough from Martin Luther King. He's tired of hearing me make reference to King. I got out of Columbus. I don't want to offend people who live in Columbus or Ohio. I was, I was born in Cincinnati. I know Ohio. Yeah. Prophet's not welcome in their own. 
but you don't want, you know, you, 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 as you know, because of your position and your experience, it's a, it's a balance. And the it I'm referring to is pastoring. It is a balance of priestly work and prophetic work. Yeah. You got to care for people where they are. And then at times you got to say something to them that they do not want to hear. The position comes with, with the threat of a stoning. I mean, Jesus got chased out of town on more than one occasion. I don't know why, um, why we think it would be any different. I don't believe in safe preaching. You know the other thing he did? The other thing he did? He, he preached and taught along riverbanks and roads. Yes, he did. He, he, he was not institutionalized. That's right. That's so, right. So that calls into question my entire life. And mine. It's been twenty. Pension. It's been twenty-eight years in the church. Yeah. So, you know. I mean, having a being on yeah. payroll as a pastor is quite different. The the flexibility, the freedom to say what God has called you to say, uh, when you got a business meeting afterwards, or you got a meeting with <laughs> uh, with finance afterwards. You know. Or, it's a tang. It's a tangled world. Absolutely. And, you know, and uh, I don't think there is one model of church. Right. In other words, um, there are many ways to be a church. Yeah. There are many ways to model that yeah. and to be in the world working as you see fit for the gospel. Mm. And some of that is mainstream and some of it isn't. Mm. So what in your estimation is the gospel of our politics? Or what is the politics of our gospel? And is there a middle ground? What, what do you, uh, where do you see yourself in that? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, you know, the church, uh, the church has made personal righteousness is a gushing piety, yeah. the sign of the sign of godliness. And it isn't. It's a sign of religious anxiety. Justice and righteousness are poetic parallels. So the gospel of our politics is here's the table of our Lord. You're welcome to eat here. This goes back oh. to your previous comments about communion mm -hmm. the politics of our gospel in this age it seems to me i've already alluded to this in american culture is christianity is entertainment and prosperity but we would have to spend i think a lot more time fleshing out these Absolutely. you know these words like like religion and race and politics they are loaded that they're sometimes very difficult to penetrate although most of us kind of understand at least we think we do what we're saying when we use those terms. So, you know, the politics of the gospel, you got to speak truth to power, man. You have to do it. And if we're not, then what are we saying? But you cannot, or you ought not, speaking to preachers here, endorse <laughs> candidates from the pulpit. Say that, sir. You got an amen. You can't do it. You gotta, you just gotta. Ha you're gonna have to ask people to grow up and be adults and and use some critical thinking skills and make their own decisions about candidates. All the while knowing that certain principles that you underline throughout a year of preaching and pastoral care uh, are going to reveal who you think is the best candidate. But I'm not going to get up in the. I, look, I'm an equal opportunity criticizer. I criticized Clinton from the pulpit about Monica Lewinsky. I, I criticized George W. Bush for the invasion of Iraq. You know, I, I've gone down. So you got to be able to, you can't just be Republican or Democrat. And finally, let me say this about the politics of the gospel. People don't come to church, and this is where I kind of hear what the right, or let's just say the conservatives are saying. People, as a rule, I don't think come to church to hear a political platform. They want, they want to hear the Democratic National Committee's platform or the Republican one. But there, there are delusional churches that think, well, we just, we just want Jesus, we just preach Jesus, they got an American flag over in the corner, and and you're know, putting their hands over the heart, singing the pledge, uh, singing, or giving the pledge of allegiance in church. Um, come on, you you cooperate with the politics more than maybe you're willing to let on. Mm. Mm. So there's been talk of uh, the need to recover 
uh, and to regain America's status as a leader in the world after the last four years? Uh, what would you say is the work of an already divided church after this presidency and after a majority of European Americans or those socially colored white evangelicals voted overwhelmingly uh, for Trump's second term? Uh, what has the church lost in bearing witness to his politics and what does it need to regain? <sighs> that sigh is so weighty. <laughs> There's a lot in there. There's well, a groan that the spirit needs to interpret. You know, uh, you ask you ask such meaty questions. You know, um, you really do. They're wonderful questions. And so the sigh is just that I got to sit here and pause and think about, um, you know, what to say in, in response to that. Which when I when I think of the work of the church. Um, it is worship. Wor worship is, and, and historically the church has understood its work to be worship. So that th whatever actions, programs, whatever you call it, comes out of that worshiping community. And, and that's, that's the important part. Now that's not the same as being entertained. That's, and it's not the idea you just show up on Sunday and, you know, you've done your bit and then the rest of the week you, you just go about living without any reference to the sacred narratives or the message. But it's uh, hard to conceive what we've lost. We have lost trust in each other. We have lost trust in our founding uh, documents in terms of how we're to, to organize as a uh, country. And we've given up on the power of the vote. I tell you what, when mm. you give up on the, the ballot, when you demonize your opponents, and, and at the end of the day, refuse to concede when you've lost, and, and you basically say, none of that counts. I don't know, it puts us in uncharted waters. But, but the church has, this is not new, again, these empires, we've dealt with these empires, emperors, the church has always come back to that worship center. And the center of that worship, of course, is proclamation and communion and baptism, right? Yeah, yeah. That has to be where we huddle together mm. and find our souls. Mm. But I, I really do wish we could de demythologize America and all of this nonsense and ask our politicians, will you just put your hand over your heart and tell us honestly that you will defend the Constitution and that you will do your best to fulfill it. Now, there's a lot of wiggle room in there. People disagree uh, how on best to fulfill it. But we just do that. And then when you feel like you have an urge to pray and look sanctimonious in front of us, don't do it. Go to your local church, synagogue, or mosque and pray there in private. Jesus says something about that. Yeah, he did. Last question, last question. That taboo trinity we talk about, race, religion, and politics, we can't seem to live well together with them. We cannot live together without them. Um, they give our lives meaning and to remove them wouldn't make any sense. I consider it a thorn in the flesh. So how do we work with them and ensure uh, that they don't enable or empower us to work against each other. You know, race, religion, and politics are beautiful to look at. Uh, but when we start to employ them, there are ways in which they become a, th they become a thorn in the flesh of our neighbor. Um, so how do we do it? How do we do the work of having these conversations um, while not being a hindrance to other people? Uh, well, I'm, I'm sure, I'm pretty sure folks think they know what they mean by these terms, and, and I've talked to you about this. Um, so some effort has to be made to unpack the terms, but uh, for example, the world religion scholar Wilfred Campbell Smith argued decades ago that the word religion was pretty much useless. Uh, for me, what should happen in our body politic is a bracketing out of religious ideology and belief from our founding documents. In other words, demythologize America, insist that politicians work to fulfill the highest ideals in those documents. So end of the day, just as an example, 
I don't care if my surgeon is a Christian, Jew, Muslim, or atheist. I care that she is an excellent surgeon. I don't want a devout Christian who is a bad surgeon anywhere near me. And I don't care if the president is a Christian or an atheist. I care, however, that she or he be dedicated to those high ideals, speak with truth and honesty about our shared life. I guess to answer your question uh, in a nutshell, it's, it's time to step back from the brink and find a way to shared life in peace and justice. No, you make fair points about... Your, your questions are too hard, though. Uh, don't start that. <laughs> don't start that. It is important work. And you mentioned us clarifying terms. So when I talk about religion or when I think about religion, you know, James says it in chapter one. Jesus' brother says religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, is to care for the orphan and the widows um, and their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You would think we could agree on that, but we don't. Um, what is that? I'm curious. I would be curious. What is the Greek word there for religion, I wonder, that's being translated as religion? Don't try to make this into look... a seminary class, right? This is a podcast. <laughs> I gotta look that up. You're retired. No. How dare you? How you're dare right you? On, you're, you're right on target. No, so I'm, I just wonder because there are spaces in sacred scripture that name it for us. For politics. It's not rocket science, it's not, is it? It's not. No, for politics, I lean toward um, um, Aristotle's, um, I think it's called Politica. Come on. Is it Politica? Because uh, he, so he just says it's, it's, it's defined as the affairs of the cities. It's simple for me. Just go to the root. And then you know, for me, race is a sociopolitical construct. Uh, it's a part of our linguistic Im imagination. I'm going to use Brian Bantam. It's the word we've made flesh. For me, mm. I think the important work is naming those things, defining those terms, right. and then gathering around to have a conversation about the ways in which or the words by which we're going to live. And if we can't live by the holy words spoken of Jesus, if we can't live by the words written in red, if there's confusion about who we're supposed to identify with and which way we're going, which way we're going, uh, and that all roads lead to Calvary, I just, I have questions with the church that is so lost mm. right now when we say we're people of the way. Before we had these denominations, uh, we were supposed to, we were people of the way. Um, and so I, I really question well, that. Yeah, I, I hear you. And you say it very well. And uh, well, the, the truth is there's always a remnant within historical times, epochs. And so, so, you know, again, it comes down to your abiding allegiance, your heart's abiding allegiance. And that's where I relate to what you said earlier about conservatives who say, just give me Jesus. I agree. That's, I mean, I'm trying to align with him. But I don't stand in the grocery aisle looking at a row of cereal boxes and think, now I need Christ to help me pick what kind of corn you are stepping in it today jesus didn't wake and you up this morning and put your clothes on for you <laughs> <laughs> you said it don't make me start you're gonna be in trouble you're gonna be in trouble keep and, it up and 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 i don't know that we should be measuring ourselves religiously when we go in the voting booth just just try to kind of bracket that out for a moment and say well, what i know about the constitution and the and the hopes of america and our history and not fulfilling those hopes and our passion for fulfilling those hopes who am i going to vote for and what you know what legislation am i going am i going to say yes or no on this piece of uh, policy in front of me and do your best and never ever give up on the image of God in someone else. Ah, so well said. And you know what? As hard as it is for me to say it, that includes we who apparently occupy the left of center, not giving up hope on the image of God and people who occupy the right of center. That's right. Now. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, I'm not crazy though. I'm not, you know, Jesus, Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. So there are times when you must know you're talking to Satan. Mm. And reaching across the aisle may not be the right response. Mm. It, might be, it might be saying, 
I cannot give my oath of allegiance to you any longer, mm. Mr. President. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and we know the whole history, of course, of the Confessing Church and Nazi Germany and how very few stood up to That's that. That's it. They all got in line. Yeah, mm -hmm. to our detriment. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> this is so good. <laughs> I want to thank our guest, Michael Bledsoe, and extend to you, our listeners, an opportunity to know this Jesus, who does not love you according to your political party affiliation, but unconditionally. Invite him to journey with you and the thorn in your flesh that pricks you and sticks you with everyone else. You can support the work and witness of the Raceless Gospel Podcast by giving to Good Faith Media. Visit our website at www.goodfaithmedia.org. This concludes this episode of the podcast, but not the conversation. Let's keep talking. Head to our Fellowship Hour over at Raceless Gospel Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Absent in the body, but present in the Wi-Fi spirit. I'll see you there. Won't you come again for episode three, our third Sunday, to hear Jeremy Bell? Because when else are you going to hear a Western Canadian with Northern Ireland roots talk about race, religion, and politics? It's up. If you stayed for the amen, then you are special, committed. You've got what it takes to build bridges. So hear this. Since 2007, Baptists have responded to President Jimmy Carter's invitation to tear down barriers in communities previously marked by division, communities estranged in apathy. The movement called New Baptist Covenant invites us all to become bridge builders. If you or your congregation are ready to respond to the call for reconciliation and healing, if you are prepared to pave the way for racial justice, if you're ready to walk in the way of love, then join the journey with New Baptist Covenant. Together, let's build bridges toward beloved community. Start online at newbaptistcovenant.org and on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. <laughs>